Welcome to the um, annual Harish C. Mahindra lecture. It's my, my privilege to uh, welcome you all on behalf of the uh, Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard. Uh, this is the seventh or eighth or ninth uh, annual Mahindra lecture, and it's uh, really become a celebratory occasion for us because it's an opportunity for us to invite uh, somebody who has... Uh, in my language, uh, really shaped the fabric of society. Uh, originally, the intent was to was to pick someone who has played an enormously constructive role in India. We've been more eclectic and occasionally invited people from other neighboring countries. Uh, and it's a privilege to have uh, Dave Kijain here today. But my task here is uh, is to introduce Dave Key's uh, friend and colleague, uh, Professor Diana Eck, whose idea it was really to invite Dave Key Jain here. For introduction, my name is Darun Khanna, in case I haven't met you, and I have the privilege of serving as the director of the Metal Institute. So without further ado, um, let me introduce Professor Diana Eck. She's professor of, compar- well, first of all, everybody knows Diana. Everywhere that I go uh, around the world, there's some Harvard alums who say, oh, yeah, yeah, she taught me and she taught them and so on. So she doesn't really need introduction, but it's, the introduction is so cool sounding that I feel like I want to le- read a little bit of it anyway. Dianak is professor of comparative religion and Indian studies, professor of law and psychiatry. Uh, where's Vikram? Uh, psychiatry, yeah. Um, Harvard College professor, and, uh, and most importantly, master of Lowell House. Uh, I think the title has changed now. Faculty Dean. Faculty Dean. I stand corrected. Her work is well known, and it's about, the way I would characterize it, it's uh, really amazing work on pluralism and understanding what it means to think about religion in the context of multi-religious societies. Uh, And anybody who reads the newspaper or has any degree of awareness would appreciate that that's of central importance uh, to us in pretty much every society. Uh, she heads this amazing thing called the Pluralism Project, which now includes a network of some 60 affiliates exploring religious dimensions of uh, recent immigrants into America. And I think that's really amazing. I've learned a lot from it. And, of course, is the recipient of too many awards for me to really mention here. But without further ado, if you would welcome my friend, colleague, teacher, mentor, Diana Eck. Thank you very much, Tarun. It is a great pleasure to be able to be here and introduce David Kijane. Um, I don't know when I've done this last, but it's a pleasure to do it today. I met David Kijane in the early 1980s. I might say that is before there was any South Asia Institute here at Harvard. There wasn't anything really on South Asia. There was a Department of Sanskrit and Indian Studies with which I was affiliated. But anyway, during the early years of my own work in India in the 1970s, I had been living among Hindus pretty much in Benares, the most old-fashioned of Hindu cities, and breathing that Benares air. And by the time I, uh, by the time I finally finished what I was working on, I felt as if I had been living in the 17th century for quite a while. And I took a deep breath of 20th century Indian air and spent a lot more time in Delhi and began meeting people who were more my own contemporaries and counterparts who were intellectuals, activists, feminists, 
And I discovered that quite a few of them were also Gandhians. And that's when I met David Jane, already very active in the women's movement in Delhi. She had recently at that time published a landmark book uh, called Indian Women that uh, gathered together some of the great people of the time, women to talk about Indian women. There were even some men included in that book uh, who wrote on Indian women. And as you can see from the table out there, she has continued in this vein to write uh, quite a number of books. In any case, uh, she introduced me to a lot of other people, to Kamla Devi Chattopadhyaya, I mean, people I would never have met on my own, uh, to her husband, L.C. Jane, who was a wonderful Gandhian activist, um, eventually to Kamla Basin and others as we went back and forth to India over the years. At that point early, she had also started the Institute for Social Studies Trust, which was creating a network of grassroots women's activist projects in India and enabling some funding for them as well. And in light of her economics background at Oxford, she had been thinking quite a lot about Gandhi, about poverty, and the interdependence of global issues. And So in 1983, she helped me plan an international conference that was held here at Harvard on women, religion, and social change. And we had to define every part of that because the religion part was a little iffy for many women and also um, was both detrimental and helpful in so many ways. So how do we think about religion in terms of deep cultural values? Um, ethical values, etc. But we brought together as planners women uh, who were grounded in the ethic of their own tradition and critics of the centers of power. And there were incredible people. I mean, there was Brigalia Baum from South Africa and Nawal El Sadawi from Egypt and Fatima Mernissi from Morocco and Radha Bhatt, who also was a Gandhian in India. And we cooperated then, uh, Devaki and I co-edited a volume then called Speaking of Faith, uh, Global Perspectives on Women, Religion, and Social Change. That was published in 86. But anyway, I'm sorry if this is too personal about our relationship, but it really matters to me that in the very next year, in 1984, Devaki and her husband came to Harvard, and for a semester, the three of us taught a seminar on Gandhi. And there were students in that seminar from all over the university, freshmen, sophomores, graduate students in various departments. And they have literally never forgotten that seminar to this day. I continually run into some of them. And for a while after that, I did continue to teach a course on uh, Gandhi, uh, his life and work, a Gandhi um, uh, yesterday or Gandhi then and now, I guess I called it. Uh, because students were so energetically interested in this. Um, in any case, over the past three decades since then, David Key's voice has been widely heard in India and internationally. She's worked with many agencies of the UN, chair of the Advisory Committee on Gender for the UN Center in Asia Pacific, advisory panel set up by the UN 
for the UN uh, development programs. She published a book, uh, sort of an overview of many of these years on women development and the UN, a six-year quest for equality and justice. And in India, has been on the University Grants Commission Standing Committee on Women's Studies. Um, Devaki, as you have read, received the Padma Bhushan in 2006 for her contributions to social justice and women's empowerment. And it is truly an honor to have Devaki Jane here to be able to speak to this audience and to students at Harvard University on empowering or engaging India and engaging feminism as someone who is a trained economist and a worker and thinker at the grassroots for many decades. Devaki, welcome again to this podium at Harvard. Thank you. It is so special for me to be in Cambridge and engage with this university. I recall my first visit here was in 1958, 60 years ago. I don't know how many of you would even be born then, (laughs) when I was 25 years old. It was to participate in a three-month-long seminar, or summer school as it was called, organized by, of all people, Henry Kissinger. At that time, he was leading the faculty on international affairs, or some such name. It was a selection of young leaders, those who were below 30 years, from all parts of the world. There were writers, journalists, economists, lawyers, politicians, the lot. Kissinger then, because I was the youngest, arranged for me to get a grant from some other foundation to travel. And I was so interested in, at that time, what was called the, it was not called the black movement, it was called the colored movement. I wanted to understand racism and its resistance. So I visited Hampton College in Atlanta, spoke about Gandhi, as well as had dinner of all people with Rosa Parks in South Carolina, and then joined the protest march of the NACP, as it was called, along Harlem. It was an unforgettable experience. Of course, I've been here to Harvard several times since then, thanks to Diana, who invited, as she was saying just now, Elsie Jane, my husband, and myself, to initiate the first course on the life and teachings of Mahatma Gandhi in 1984, and then later on for other engagements. When Meena Hebert visited me in New Delhi a few weeks ago, she informed me that the institute for this next program will be concentrating on issues emerging from the partition of India. So I was tempted to share with you my own experience of post-partition India, the kind of personal anecdotes before going into what is another part of my lecture, which is the existence and the growth and the excitement of the feminist movement in India. I like to call myself and those of us who were young adults in India in the 1950s, the before midnight's children. Unlike Salman Rushdie's protagonists who were born at the very midnight hour, August 15th, 1947, we as young adults threw ourselves into the work of a new and free India in the 1950s. We experienced an India which we will fantasize about and which also shaped our politics profoundly. I would go further and suggest 
that we got deeply attached to some ideas, ideologies, aspirations of that experience that we are still not able to shed. Even today at the age of 85, I feel that is what defined me. I was 14 years old when India declared independence on August 15, 1947. I was living in the city of Gwalior, where my father was what was called at that time Diwan. Today you call it chief minister, to use that. We, his family, were somewhat screened from the turmoil that was going on next door in New Delhi. But like a new arrow, the assassination of Gandhi pierced our household. As my father has written in his memoirs called Raj Maharajas and Me, a few days prior to the assassination of Gandhiji, the assassins had been in my father's house in his drawing room, angry with my father for restricting the activities of the RSS and also not including RSS party members in his cabinet. They had abused Gandhi, amongst others. They abused my father, Nehru, and threatened to kill them all and made death threats. As it happens, heartbreakingly, Gandhi had sent for my father on the 29th of January, just the day before he was assassinated. Gandhi had been told of my father's skillful handling of the Chamber of Princes, enabling the integration of the Indian princely states into the Republic of India. His conversation with Gandhi of that evening is full of portents, and it is in his book, and so I want to quote a piece from that. My father recalls how Gandhi asked him to stay on after the meeting and pointing to a few people who were agitating outside Gandhi's room, said, you see those poor people standing outside my room? They are from Bannu. They have come all the way to see me. One of them was quite angry with me today and he told me, Gandhiji, you should die. I said, I will not die until my inner voice says I should. And do you know Srinivasan what he said? <coughs> and he said, my inner voice says that you should die, this man from Bannu said to him. So when my father heard that Gandhi was shot dead the next day by a man from the RSS, he was devastated. He also felt that Gandhi had some kind of prescience or premonition that death was near. The partition, the fury after its aftermath, flew in the face of all that Gandhi had worked for. Much has been written about the partition, the bloodshed, the violence, and displacement of people that it generated. As always, women were specially victimized as they suffered rape, abduction, separation, and loss of children. This event and its aftermath was one of the most important social and political issues in the country during that period, 47 to 56. And I'm glad that the Mittal Institute will be engaging with that history, which is why I brought up these stories since you are doing post-partition India. The best figures available suggest about 10,000 women were abducted, 100,000 women were abducted, killed, or casually cast aside, mainly in the Punjab. On the fate of women, Urvashi Butalia, one of our uh, publishers and also a, a historian, has this to say, many of them were raped and some were killed, some were sold into prostitution, some were sold hand to hand, some were taken as wives and married after conversion, and some just disappeared. I didn't know all this at that time, but on reflection, I think my, my journey to the feminist movement or the feminist space began in those tumultuous years. It has been a long journey. I sometimes say it started in 1973, 45 years ago, when I discovered the energy of, our, of the feminist movement in the US. 
but I see it now as a continuation of our passions as young women with the spirit of and aura of the post-liberation years. I wish some of you who were alive at that time, I'm sure there are some elders here, would add to my own recollection. It was the most exuberant, exhilarating spirit in India at the time. So I sometimes say that my interest in feminist movement started in 73, but I see it now as a continuation of our passions as young women with the spirit of an aura of the post-liberation years, that is immediately after liberation. Now you know about, you must have heard about the Women's March for Change, recently organized by women's groups all over India on April 4th, 2019, to raise their collective voice against the current environment of hate and violence which, as you must have heard, is pervading India, and to reclaim their constitutional rights as citizens of a democratic republic. It is also heard in the voices of many of my friends, members of my generation, such as Nayantara Segal, Romila Tapar, who agonize about the politics that is running wild through the world and currently singeing India. While the partition had wounded the subcontinent severely, and it was impossible to celebrate the liberation without that shadow, other energies also emerged. We were the center of curiosity and applause for the whole world for many reasons, but especially for having removed the colonizer, the imperial power, without an armed struggle. Though many would disagree that there was no violence, the story of freedom fighters such as Bhagat Singh reveals there was terrible violence also. But on the whole, it was a peaceful negotiation thanks to Gandhi's nonviolence. But India was free. And everyone was working towards rebuilding India and reclaiming her own culture, her own civilization, her own intellect. Many of that era's women leaders, such as Kamala Devi Chattopadhyaya, Aruna Asafali, Sarojini Naidu, and others had been partners in the freedom struggle and had led protests, processions, had been imprisoned. They were prominent leaders in the post-liberation India, and each of them set up All India Women's Organizations. Notable amongst these stalwarts, and I'm mentioning all this because I was told about the Mittal Foundation's interest in post-partition India. Notable amongst these stalwarts was Kamala Devi Chattopadhyaya. She set up cultural organizations such as the National School of Drama, Sangeet Natak Academy, and many more. But what would be of special interest to the Mittal Foundation is to know that she set up something called the Indian Cooperative Union, which engaged itself with the most important outcome of partition, the rehabilitation of the refugees. The cooperative, not the registered society, not the corporate, was the mode being fostered for rebuilding the lives of the refugees. The city of Faridabad, any of you who visited Delhi would remember this city, was built by the refugees through labor cooperative societies. Faridabad soon grew into a fledgling industrial township it developed a system of social health which was unique, a non-colonial system of basic education, and workers held the ownership of industrial enterprise. Elsie Jane, whom I later married, was the general secretary of this endeavor, and he has written a book on this cooperative work, copies of which I brought for the Lakshmi Mittal Foundation since you are working on post-partition India. It shows the spirit of that era. The Indian Cooperative Union also set up the now famous Cottage Industries Emporium, a marketing hub for cooperatives of artisans. I joined the Indian Cooperative Union's research division in 1957 at the age of 24, 
and I was asked to undertake a comparative exercise of the various rural development programs steered by Gandhian ashrams dotted all over the country under the broad banner of the Sarva Seva Sangh. Almost every social activist was a follower of Gandhi. What did that mean? It meant living in rural areas, wearing khadi, and managing with simple livelihood styles. This mode became the mode for many young people, including myself. This exploration drew me to walk with Vinoba Bhave. I don't know how many of you have heard of him, but he was one of the Gandhians who was attempting redistributive justice by appealing to the moral sentiments of local residents in a village to share some of their land with the landless. It was called Bhutan, the voluntary gifting of land by the land-owning classes to the landless. And then Gramdan, which was the gifting of the whole village to itself. It seemed to be working, as after that, carders were employed to check the land revenue records and make sure that the gift was given. I mentioned this particular explanation at that time, this idea of a moral appeal being successful as an equality-creating tool, a handle, was intriguing the scholars from the left and others in India. It was unbelievable that people would do it out of a moral compulsion. Hence, when I returned from Orissa, <clears throat> where I had gone to live in a Gramdan village as a part of my research, and stopped in Calcutta on my way back to meet an old friend, Amartya Sen, he and his friends, Jacques Sassoon, Andre Bete, some of these names may be familiar to those of you who have been scholars in India, all at the university were immensely interested. Could this experiment be real? Was altruism really working? What a thought, and it did for some time. If I may reminisce and share another later experience with you, when I mentioned this phenomenon of Gramdan, a village giving itself to, um, to itself, to my tutor in Oxford at that time, the philosopher-novelist Iris Murdoch, she was fascinated, and she saw it as an illustration of Rousseau's concept of the general will. In the 50s and 60s, rural development and employment were the prominent themes, side by side with the building of dams and machines. Economic policy was led by the left. For those of you who are economists, you would remember Professor Mahala Nobis and Kian Raj, but most of the voluntary agencies were tethered in Gandhian philosophy, which meant wearing khadi, adopting lifestyles where simplicity was the code. Domestic production of goods was also another strum, and since India had a base of handmade goods, textiles as well as consumer goods, it was possible to maintain the ethic of self-reliance and livelihood enhancement. Many of you may have heard of Amul, the famous cooperative of milk cooperatives, and it's unbelievable that the milk was collected from individual households and then processed into a distributive system all over India. I suggest there was a parallel walk of the Soviet model of economic progress, machines and mother machines, with Gandhian model of rural village and community development. One could suggest that Marx and Gandhi walked side by side and complemented each other in India's endeavors to reconstruct herself. This venture... Designing India's economic policy and ideas and people behind it, including Nehru himself, attracted brilliant Indian scholars who were teaching in foreign universities like Oxford and Harvard. So in 1963, the Delhi School of Economics had a galaxy of young economists like Amartya Sen, Shukumar Chakravarti, Dharma Kumar, Jagdish Bhagwati, a shining orb that attracted attention 
And this was again the magnetic pull of post-independence India. Returning from Oxford in 1962, I too began to teach economics in Delhi at Miranda House and joined this club and the exciting discussions and debates that were going on about Amartya Sen's work on choice of techniques, other issues like the rate of growth and its links to the rate of savings, and so on. The overall concern was for employment, jobs, as it is called today. The public space was open in more ways than one, intellectually, socially, and culturally. An enterprise such as the Cottage Industries Emporium also opened an art gallery where Hussein would exhibit his works and Ravi Shankar would play the sitar. The Economic and Political Weekly had all of us young scholars, writers, and became a hub. And what of us, the before midnight's children, and our engines, currently reduced to dissenters, issuing joint statements expressing our anxieties? These are not only limited to anxieties on fanning of communal flames which is happening. In India, communal, as you know, means religious communities, but tampering with the ethic of the Indian constitution. We are just left with a kind of dissenting odd people from the post-partition India. But into this dim scenario, two energetic forces have entered, and that's the hope. The Dalit movement and the women's or the feminist movement. Neither is tethered in the sentimentality of my generation. The Dalit movement wants space wherever it is and voice. So does the feminist movement. Neither Marx nor Gandhi oversees them. It is these two forces, in my view, that might lead India back to issues related to justice, human rights, some form of egalitarianism. By the turn of the century, the term feminism had become much more commonplace in India as also in other developing countries. But in the early 70s, when the idea of feminism emerged in India, it generated a lot of turbulence. The first response was rejection, partly due to the misunderstanding that feminism is an assertion of women's identity was anti-male. I learned this word feminism and its meaning from an old friend, Gloria Steinem, because in 71 she rocked the USA by publishing a magazine called Ms. Magazine, a new acronym to get out of the binary, Miss or Mrs. Then in 73 she made it to the cover of Time Magazine. But I had already met her in 1958, where I was working in India, and she had a Fulbright scholarship and was living in a hostel Miranda house. Both of us were single, had common friends, and used to hang out together in Delhi. But then when she returned to USA, we lost. Remember, there was no internet in that days. You had somebody go back to America, that was it. Even phone calls were difficult. So when our next visit came up in 74, we met, and she took me to the Ms. Magazine's office and explained all the various aspects of feminism. It was an affirmation of women's collective consciousness. This is such an important idea. Strength and politics. I was smitten and came back to India and announced that I'm a feminist. This was not received well at that time. <laughs> it was considered an American import. They could only remember bra burning and exclusion of men, which was not Indian culture. I remember the eminent leader, Aruna Asafali. I'm sure many of you have heard of her. She was reproved me and said, don't bring that, that feminist into India. However, after that first shock response by Indian women and others from the South countries, another kind of response emerged. It was argued that feminism as an idea was not necessarily birthed in the West at all. It was a philosophy or a concept within the women's movement of the South countries. We claimed it. 
For example, you have Sri Lankan feminist. Many of you may have heard of her, Kumari Jayavardhane. She wrote a book called Feminism and Nationalism in the Third World. You should invite her here. She's really a pioneer on political uh, Sri Lanka. She argues that undercurrents of what is named feminism is part of the landscape in the history of women's movements in many countries of the South. Adopting a broad definition of 19th and early 20th century feminism as action against women's oppression and exploitation within the family, at work, and in society. She insists that, like other radical ideas, it is not ethnically circumscribed. Her thinking, while rooted within the specific historical context, defines, defies enclosure. In her book, she claims that for women's emancipation, it's intertwined with the modernizing impetus, which is the nationalist movements. Currently, there are so many books, lectures, which narrate the existence of this passion, feminism in earlier times, even earlier centuries. The Bengali poet Navanita Sen, I'm sure many of you have heard of her, she gave a lecture in Mumbai, and she says, ladies sing the blues, women retelling the Rama tale. She refers to village women who in folk ditties abuse Ram, the famous hero of the Ramayana, for his cowardice in treating his wife Sita in such terrible ways. It's a lovely name, Ladies Sing the Blues. And this is of village women uh, in three, four centuries ago. As I was fascinated by feminism, and there were many feminists at that time in Delhi who could claim to be Marxist feminists, socialist feminists, I wanted to explore whether within the Gandhian framework it's possible to have a Gandhian feminism <laughs> in order to explore, capture that, I called a meeting of about 40 women from the Gandhi ashrams. And there were also some famous luminaries like Ila Bhatt and Radha Bhatt who also came. We started by asking ourselves to speak about ourselves, how we came into finding an ethic, a philosophy, what drew us to what we were doing. We also explained to them that we were searching for what could be called Gandhian feminism. Sorry, we've got some page mixed up here. To our great shock, as the individual women began to narrate their life stories, they broke down with pain. Each of them had nothing to say but to tell how badly they were treated in the ashram by the directors of the ashram who happened to be their husbands. They were nothing more than domestic helps. And since in Gandhian practice you did not employ domestic help, they did all the manual work, they looked after the guests, they cooked, they washed, they cleaned. Their breaking down was enough to get the message that those who claimed to be learning and practicing Gandhi had not been able to grasp or practice the essence of Gandhi's ideas, which included tremendous regard for women and many prescriptions on how women need to be dislodged from the kitchen dislodged from what we call domestic drudgery, dislodged from what he calls serving a master. I have some quotations if there is time. There's a quotation from Gandhi which matches one-to-one -one a quotation from Amartya Sen. But I'll wait if there's time. In 1983, Diana convened a seminar on women, religion, and social change at Harvard. She'd invited women from the various religious religions, especially those who were either dissenters or had reformed the religion. 
with what could be called a feminist mind. Radha Bhatt, a practicing Gandhian, and I came to speak, along with women from Israel, Palestine, Egypt, South Africa, Guatemala. Diana and I, and she mentioned this to you, edited a book out of the presentations. The book is titled Speaking of Faith, Global Perspectives on Women, Religion, and Social Change. Most of the testimonies revealed that women were not given respect and status. The male gaze was a demeaning gaze. A vivid illustration was given by the brilliant Moroccan historian Fatima Barnissi, which is an essay in our book, on how women who were strong and rejected male hegemony were perceived as witches, insane. The term used was no shoes and put aside. This practice was also in Ghana, where strong women were deemed to be witches, burnt and killed. And you might know the story of Joan of Arc, who was considered a witch. I was exhilarated when Diana introduced me to the Divinity School, where feminists were changing the prayer in the name of the father to in the name of the mother. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu's daughter, called Tutu, who is also a priest, has rewritten the Christ story, the parables, giving agency and power to Mary, the mother, and not Jesus, her son. You should read those rewritten parables. The word feminism is used in India currently as a kind of generic term for understanding that this is women-led, women-focused effort. There are feminist networks, feminist journals, and when it comes to issues of women's rights and the quest for a better deal from, let us say, the economic and social policies, feminism is a word that is used. There are special focused feminist networks, as in law, work, economics, rights, caste, sexual orientation, then there are electronic news sheets like the Ladies Finger, Feminist India, Feminist Yahoo, another, a whole lot, maybe about 50 uh, wire networks of feminists. While the English language dominates, of late there are many in other languages. These networks generate knowledge as well as mobilize opinion, leading to collective voice, either on a policy or a program, or protest or support. Their focal points are scattered across the country but they provide an all-India voice through networking, petitions, marches, demonstrations, conferences, books, articles in newspapers, journals, a really energetic social movement. So far, it has not generated a person as a leader, no overarching personality. And this is a commendable aspect of feminist organizing in India, that we don't iconize any one woman. While there are women's groups, committees, women's wings, and political parties, they do not have the same presence as these feminist networks. Feminists have been claimed and used politically in ways that strengthen women. But as Professor Nivedita Menon of JNU makes it clear, it is also integrally related to other movements for justice and liberation. I quote Nivedita, as I find her language and her approach so powerful and meaningful, and I identify myself with it. The success of feminism lies precisely in its capacity to motivate people to affirm themselves as feminists in different kinds of contexts. But equally important, sometimes a feminist will have to recognize that the defining factor at work in a particular situation may be race or caste, not gender. Just as conversely, a Dalit activist or a Marxist will have to recognize the defining feature in the same situation as gender, not caste or class. All radical political activists and theorists then necessarily also must be feminists. I hold a similar view. I would suggest that feminism is a philosophy, 
which speaks to justice and individual rights. Feminism expands itself, not only think of women's rights, but the rights of everyone, and particularly now the LGBT community. Therefore, I do not wish to embed it in gender differentiation. I, what I want to give it a meaning, which is of spirit of liberty, individual rights, even justice. Despite giving this broader definition or characterization of feminism, I still tend to associate feminism with women. You might say it's a contradiction. And that is because more women, and particularly many women scholars, are defining themselves as feminist philosophers, feminist economists, feminist lawyers, and therefore the adjective feminist is pervading all the disciplines, and each discipline has been unpacked, explored, and reasonably argued by feminist thinkers and scholars. We are a movement which has traversed or broken through all the other boundaries which we had inherited, like anti-colonial struggles. One dream that I still have, a goal that I think needs to be achieved by us feminists, who have lived through the last five or more decades, is to hammer out a political economy philosophy. We tried that through a collective effort in India with the 10th five-year plan. I won't elaborate the description of that, but if you're interested in a question, I would then answer that. As someone who has been traveling along the economic development road for several decades, this is one regret I have, that we feminists have not been able to hammer out an economic theory, a logical argument that starts from the knowledge that we have of woman as labor. It is woman as a worker that opened my eyes to injustice and inequality, and it's through transforming her life that an economic theory can be born which would contain what I think is feminism. Economic inequality is on a rampage in the world today, as Thomas Piketty and others have pointed out. Shamefully, India, with perhaps the largest number of persons in persistent poverty, has five Indians in the Forbes list of the wealthiest persons in the world today. I also think that a feminist, not only feminist economist, but feminist, a, philo a philosopher, a sociologist, a political scientist, every discipline would come together to unpack inequality, probe inequality in its myriad expressions, gaze through the prismatic quality of inequality with the feminist lens, they might come up with a new treatise on economic inequality, maybe to replace John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, maybe even Gandhi. Such a reconstruction could make a difference to the injustice that is bulldozing all of us. I hope that we have, can make that difference, and that will be the beginning of feminist politics, a task for the next generation. Thank you.